A social worker once visited a man in his home and noticed a few books on the bedside table. There was a Bible, a book of common prayer, a copy of the Quran, a biography of Karl Marx, and a book of yoga exercises, along with something I suspect this man needed most, a popular self-help book entitled How to Stop Worrying. But I think this man's predicament reveals a common problem. We're all looking for certainty. We're looking for a truth that we can stand on, something that won't let us down. But we don't know where to find it. Now, if you're sitting in this room this morning, I suspect that means that perhaps, maybe, just maybe, you think that Jesus might provide answers to some of the questions that you're asking. But how do you know? How do you really know? How do we know if Jesus is real? How can we be sure? How can we be certain? Well, many people are familiar with the famous trilemma. Have you heard this? The trilemma, liar, lunatic, or Lord? Given the audacious claims that Jesus made about himself and his dramatic actions, some would suggest that Jesus could not merely be a human teacher or a prophet, no matter how enlightened or in touch with the divine. There's only three options. Either he was a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord he claimed to be. Either he was a con man, a crazy megalomaniac, or the Christ. And when you look carefully at Jesus' claims and his actions, the things that he said and the things that he did, it just doesn't seem to make sense to suggest that he was evil or wicked or that he was crazy and out of his mind. He probably really was who he claimed to be. But if you're a theological sharpshooter, you know that there is a fourth option. Most everything we know about Jesus comes from the Gospels. And so, how do we know that the Gospels provide us with an accurate account of what Jesus said and did? How do we know that they're not embellished stories that exaggerate the portrait of Jesus beyond what the facts will bear? Now, some of you have never heard of this before, so now I've just really messed things up for you, in which case I'm, I'm sorry. But you see the problem? There's a fourth option. Well, maybe he's not a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord he claimed to be. Maybe he's a legend. Maybe everything we know about Jesus is shrouded in myth, and therefore we can never really get to the bottom of what he did and said. But if you've ever worried about that, I've got some good news for you. Because the gospel writer Luke anticipates your question and addresses it right from the get-go. Luke wrote a two-volume work. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, the third Gospel. The second volume is the Book of Acts. And Luke, at the very beginning, follows a very well-established literary custom in the ancient world. He includes a preface. And in this preface to his two-volume work, he explains his methods and his reasons for writing. So in a moment, you'll notice that he addresses the work to most excellent Theophilus. This is clearly a person of elevated status. He refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, similar to the ways in which we might address a diplomat as your excellency. So this gospel is written for an educated, cultured, sophisticated person. And Luke knows 
that the first question a person like that is going to ask him is where did you get your information? What's the source? How do I know that what you're telling me is reliable? Where did you get your, your information? How do I know that what you're telling me is trustworthy? So do you see the contemporary relevance of the way in which Luke begins his gospel? He's asking the modern question. How do we know that the gospels are reliable and they give us an accurate picture of who Jesus is and what he's done? Well, last week we began a new series through which we're going to explore the authentic Jesus. We're going to take another look, perhaps the first look for some of us, at who he is, what he did, and why he matters. And today I want us to consider the source. How do we know that we can trust the source? How do we know that the Gospels provide us with reliable information about Jesus? And so as we consider the preface to Luke's Gospel today, we'll see that Luke tells us the what, the how, and the why. He tells us what it is that he's written, how he went about writing it, and why. And if you want a little cheat sheet, Luke basically provides us with a snapshot of his entire process using five verbs. There's five verbs in these four short verses that summarize the whole process. And those words are accomplished, delivered, followed, write, and know, or have certainty. All right, so let's jump in. The what, the how, and the why. If you'd like, you can open up a Bible to Luke chapter 1. This passage is also printed in your order of worship, and it can be found on page 855 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. So first of all, what exactly did Luke write? Well, in verse 1, he explains, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just so he writes his own. So he is writing a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. The Gospels are narratives which describe real events that took place in time and space which center around the person of Jesus. So far, so good. But there's something odd about this first sentence. Do you see this? Notice how strange this is. You would expect Luke to write, well, I compiled a narrative of the things that happened. But he doesn't use the word happened. He says, I've compiled a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, the things that have been fulfilled among us. In other words, he's presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of history, as the fulfillment of our deepest longings and aspirations. He's telling us that God has spoken and acted in Jesus. And this defines reality. This is what is really real. And the only way we'll discover our true selves, the only way we'll become our true selves, is by tapping into this reality that has now been disclosed in the person of Jesus. So Luke is not offering us a myth or a legend. 
Now, he says he's offering us a truth. But we as modern people, we're a little skittish, aren't we, when it comes to talking about truth. There's probably two primary ways in which people think about truth. One way is to say, well, there is no God, and there is no truth with a capital T. There are just facts, scientific facts, based on what we can taste, touch, see, smell, and hear. So there's no truth that tells us our identity or our purpose or who we are, how we're supposed to live, or what's right and wrong, or what is the essence of a human being. There's no God. There's no design. There's no purpose. You and I, we're just accidents. Somehow, some way, the conditions were just right for life to emerge out of the primordial soup. So there is no God. There is no truth outside of ourselves. There's just bare, objective facts based on our five senses. But on the other hand, some people would say, well, if you say there is no God, there is no truth, I would say, well, we are all God. God is everything. And the way in which we discover the truth is by tapping into the divine within us. We have to find the God within. Now, the sociologist Robert Bella years ago coined this whole approach to life and to truth as Sheilaism because he was referring to a woman whom he interviewed named Sheila Larson. And this is what she said. She said, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism. She said this herself. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess take care of each other. Now, we might think, well, that's just sort of silly. I mean, who would really invent their own religion based on themselves? Sheilaism, Jasonism. And yet, if you stop and think about it, this is increasingly the way in which people approach life. You could look at Elizabeth Gilbert, for example, who wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love. She demonstrates the same idea. We just have to tap into that inner voice within ourselves. The God, the divine, is within us. If only we can learn to hear our own voice speaking to us. Now, these two approaches to truth might seem like polar opposites of one another. But notice what they have in common. If you say there is no God, there is no truth, or you only discover the truth by looking deep within yourself, in both cases, when you get up in the morning, there is absolutely no one for you to obey. There's no one for you to obey. If there is no truth outside of yourself or you discern the truth, decide the truth within yourself, then there's no one for you to obey. There's no truth outside of you that you need to submit to. Now, you might say, you might say well, that sounds great. <laughs> uh, I like the sound of that because that allows me to live my life however way I want. But the question is, is that realistic? And what are the repercussions of that? Are we missing something vital to our existence as human beings if we deny that there's any kind of truth outside of ourselves. See, Luke is not offering us a myth, but a truth. He's telling us that God, God has spoken and acted in Jesus, and this is what is really real. And let me tell you something. If God has not spoken to us, then we really cannot speak to one another. What do I mean by that? If God has not spoken to us, then we really cannot speak to one another. Here's what I mean. 
One person might say, well, I believe that love, love is the essence of reality. And because that's the case, we must, we have to treat absolutely every person with equal dignity, value, and respect. But another person might say, well, what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. You have your truth, I have mine. And a person could say, many have, a person could say, well, I understand why I should be good to those who are close to me, who directly impact my own well-being. But I really don't see any compelling reason why I should care about people who for all practical purposes are irrelevant to my own happiness and well-being. Do you see that? It makes sense to say I should be good to the people who are close to me, who actually directly impact my life, but why should I care about all people everywhere who have no impact on my own life, my own well-being, or my own happiness? See, you've got your truth, I've got mine. How do I know that your truth is mine as well? If God does not speak to us, we can't speak to one another. And think about this, on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, as, as we remember and celebrate the accomplishments that he made within our society. How could Martin Luther King ever call people to racial justice, racial equality, if there is no truth outside of ourselves? It just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. So you see, what Luke wants us to understand is that God has spoken and he has acted in the person of Jesus. He's not offering us a myth. He's offering us a truth. And that truth is not just for me because it works for me. That truth must be true for everyone or it doesn't work for anyone. So the first thing that Luke tells us is that he has compiled a narrative about the things that have been accomplished, the things that have been fulfilled in Jesus. But how do we know? How can we be sure? Well, then he goes on to explain his process with Three words, delivered, followed, and right. See, first of all, he tells us, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now, for decades, skeptical scholars have argued that the Gospels are based on these anonymous oral stories that circulated and evolved over a long period of time, long after Jesus had died. And therefore, there's really no way to be able to tell fact from fiction. We don't know the truth. We can't know it. But in 2006, a scholar named Richard Balcom called all that into question and revolutionized the academic world with a book entitled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Now, Balcom is a very well-respected scholar who carefully argues through painstaking research that the accounts of Jesus are not based on anonymous oral traditions, but rather on eyewitness testimony. And the gospel writers sought to meticulously recount the life and the meaning of Jesus with sharp precision. And even though ancient authors didn't use footnotes, the gospel writers even devised a way to cite their sources, especially when it comes to the most important events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. So in all four gospels, you'll notice that the gospel writers tell us precisely which individuals saw what 
when Jesus was crucified, when he was taken from the cross, when he was laid in the tomb, and when he was resurrected on the third day. Now, this is what Balkan suggests. He writes, I suggest that we need to recover the sense in which the Gospels are testimony. This does not mean that they are testimony rather than history. It means that the kind of history they are is testimony. An irreducible feature of testimony as a form of human utterance is that it asks to be trusted. It's also a rather neglected fact that all history, like all knowledge, relies on testimony. In the case of some kinds of a historical event, this is especially true, indeed obvious. In the last chapter of his book, we shall consider a remarkable modern instance, the Holocaust, where testimony is indispensable for adequate historical access to the events. We need to recognize that, historically speaking, testimony is a unique and uniquely valuable means of access to historical reality. And then in one other point, he says this, we trust testimony not because we can verify it for ourselves, well, then we wouldn't need the testimony, but because we assume the witnesses to be reliable. In order to distrust testimony, we need a definite reason for not trusting it. In this particular case, we might think that what the witnesses claim about such as the bodily resurrection of Jesus we might think that what the witnesses claim is something we just cannot believe, and so we have to regard the witnesses as unreliable, even if we have no other reason to distrust them. But if we are in the least open to the transcendent and surprising action of God in the world, then we can give the witnesses a respectful hearing. See, in the ancient world, people trusted the testimony of eyewitnesses, especially those who were closer to the events that they described, because those were the ones who were considered to be most reliable. And that's what Luke wants us to understand. He reveals his sources in verse 2, and he tells us that this testimony was delivered by the eyewitnesses. And the word he uses there in Greek is the otoptai. You can hear the English word autopsy behind that Greek word. Now, anyone in the medical field knows that an autopsy, a post-mortem examination, seeks to determine the cause of death through a close personal examination of the body. And that's what the eyewitnesses have done. They bear witness to what they saw and heard because of their close proximity to the person of Jesus. And that phrase, from the beginning, is rather important. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So the eyewitnesses that Luke appeals to are those who witnessed Jesus' public ministry from the beginning straight through to the very end. Because in the ancient world, again, those were the witnesses that were considered to be most credible, the ones who had seen an event from start to finish. So he tells us who the eyewitnesses were they undoubtedly would have included the 12 apostles who were directly commissioned by Jesus to bear witness to what they saw and heard, but he also includes a list of women who began following Jesus from the start of his ministry. He lists them by name in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, a woman named Susanna. And what is it that these eyewitnesses have done? They have delivered their testimony. Delivered. Now, this doesn't come through in the English, but in the Greek, 
Peridocin is a technical term. It was a technical world, word in the ancient world to describe the handing down of a received tradition. And if you were going to pass on a received tradition, you couldn't change a thing. You couldn't omit or change one word. You had to be faithful to the testimony, so you delivered it exactly as you had received it. Paul uses the exact same word, 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, I delivered unto you what I had first received. I didn't change a thing. I handed it on just as I had heard it. So the first stage in this process is the eyewitnesses delivered the testimony of what they saw and heard. Now the Gospels, therefore, of Matthew and John were written directly by apostles. They themselves were eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus from beginning right through to the end. But what about Luke? What about Mark? They weren't apostles. Well, Luke goes on to describe the second step in his process, which centers on the word followed. See, he says in verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Luke was a companion of Paul. He receives the testimony of the eyewitnesses, but he doesn't just take their word for it. No, he says he followed all things closely for some time past. He investigated the matter himself. And I think we can take a good guess as to when he did that. Luke arrived in Palestine for the first time along with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21. Very soon after that, Paul is arrested and will spend the better part of two years in prison, though Luke remains free. But then Luke will leave Palestine again with Paul to head for Rome in Acts 27. So what do you think Luke was doing during that two-year period? I don't think he was sunbathing beside the sea of Galilee. I suspect that Luke spent that two-year period walking the length and the breadth of Palestine, retracing Jesus' steps and talking directly with the eyewitnesses to determine the truth of what actually happened. And I don't doubt that he interviewed the Virgin Mary herself because Luke's gospel is the only one that recounts the birth of Jesus specifically from Mary's point of view. How would anyone know what Mary was thinking or feeling unless she shared it directly with Luke? So Luke followed all these things closely. He investigated them for himself, and then he wrote an orderly account, the third step in the process. Luke's aware that many were writing narratives at that time, and he must have been thinking about the Gospel of Mark in particular. Now, an early bishop named Papias said that Mark was the interpreter of Peter. So Mark was a companion of Peter. Luke was a companion of Paul. Neither Mark nor Luke were direct eyewitnesses, but we can assume that the bulk of their testimony, testimony derived from Peter and from Paul. So he received that testimony as it was delivered from the eyewitnesses. He investigated the matter for himself, and then he wrote an orderly account. Now let me stop and ask you, does this sound like a legend? Is this how legends are made? King Arthur, if, if he actually existed, lived in the 400s during the Dark Ages. But do you realize that the first written stories we have about King Arthur were written 400 years later? And that is true of all legends and myths. 
legends and myths that are at least somewhat associated with a historical figure take a long time to develop, long after anybody actually involved in the events is dead because no one's around then to contradict the stories, and that's how they evolve, and that's how they become more and more fanciful over time. But that's not the case with the Gospels. So how do we know that we can trust the Gospels? Well, let me give you three reasons to sum up. And these are the same three criteria that the earliest Christians used to assess the writing that was available to them in the first century to determine whether it was true or false. See, first of all, we can trust the date. Even the most skeptical of scholars will now agree that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not written centuries after the death of Jesus. No, they were written a few mere decades after the death of Jesus, within living memory of all those who were present in Palestine at the time, including both Jesus' friends and his enemies. And why were they written at that point in time? Why were the Gospels written 30 or 40 years after the death of Jesus? Well, don't you see? It makes perfect sense. That is the stage at which the original eyewitnesses would have been getting older, and they would have known at that point that their testimony is going to die with them unless they write it down. So they write it down just then. But they write their testimony while the contemporaries of Jesus are still alive. And that's why they couldn't fudge anything. Because all it would take is for one person to say, look, I was there when all that happened that you're describing, and, and it's not true. But we don't have any accounts of anyone actually questioning what the Gospels were written when they were first released. So you see that the Gospels were written too early for them to be merely fictionalized stories. But then secondly, we can trust the authors. Because as Luke is trying to make clear, the Gospels were either written directly by the apostles by the eyewitnesses of the events they describe, or as in the case of Luke, they were based on eyewitness accounts. And these eyewitnesses, the reason why Luke and Mark and John and Matthew list them by name is because they were still alive and known to the community at the time of writing. So Luke, in effect, is saying, look, if you don't believe what I'm telling you about the birth of Jesus or the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, Hear the witnesses. Go talk to Peter. Go talk to Mary Magdalene. Go talk to Joanna. They will vouch for my story. So we can trust the date. We can trust the authors. But then finally, we can trust the message. What's shocking is that the four Gospels tell the same consistent story. I mean, it's, it's such a gift to the church that we actually have four independent, individual accounts of the life and meaning of Jesus. And yet, Though they share the same consistent story, there are some minor discrepancies between them. But that's precisely what you would expect when you're dealing with eyewitness testimony. Not everyone remembers things exactly the same way. So for my money, I would say that the fact that the Gospels agree on all the major points, even though there are some differences when it comes to the minor details, actually lends credibility to the Gospels. If you're going to make it up, you would have them in lockstep with one another. There would be no discrepancies whatsoever. But the differences in those small little details point to their validity. And that's especially true when you consider the fact that the authors of the Gospels include some highly embarrassing moments for both the disciples and for Jesus. 
The Gospels include the, the moment when James and John are trying to one-up one another and secure positions of power within Jesus' kingdom. The Gospels include the moment when Peter boasts and says, I'm not going to be like the rest of those knuckleheads, Jesus. I'll never let you down. And then Peter proceeds to deny Jesus, not once, but twice, but three times. See, why would you characterize the followers of Jesus, the original 12, in such a negative light? Or why would you cast Jesus in a negative or a confusing light? The Gospels tell us that Jesus experienced a, a moment of weakness where he agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane and prays that God would let him off the hook and allow him to escape his mission. Or why would the Gospel writers include the moment where from the cross Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the enemies of Christianity would have seized on those embarrassing moments, and they did, to try to discredit the early Christian movement. And the gospel writers must have felt enormous pressure to leave those details out in order to make their story more plausible, but they don't. And the fact that they include even those embarrassing details lends even more support to the idea that the gospels are true. So you see, we can trust the date, we can trust the authors, and we can trust the message. But you might be thinking, so what? Who cares? What difference does it really make? What does this have to do with me? Well, if you're wondering that, I'm glad you asked. Because the last thing that Luke does is he explains why he wrote his gospel in verse 4. He says, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, that you may know, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wants you to know the things that have been accomplished among us. He's concerned that we know the truth. And you see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion, every other philosophy, every other ideology in the world. Look, every religion involves teaching and events. There's always teaching, there's, there, there's ideas, there's practices, there's things you're supposed to do, and there are events associated with the life, usually of the founder or one of the great prophets within that religion. And in every other religion, that teaching takes precedence over the events. It's the teaching that matters. So consider Buddhism. We know something about the life of the Buddha, but you could strip out everything associated with the events of Buddha's life, and it wouldn't change a thing because you still have the teaching. You can still follow the eightfold path to enlightenment. Or consider Islam. Even if Muhammad never existed, you've still got the five pillars of Islam. So you see that the, the, the teaching takes precedence over the events. It's the teaching that matters. But in Christianity, it's the events that take precedence over the teaching. If you take away the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity falls apart. Christianity doesn't make sense anymore. The events associated with Jesus form the heart of Christianity. And why is that? Because we are not saved by the teaching. 
We're saved by the events. God does not save you if you follow Jesus' teaching. There is teaching for us to follow, but that's not what saves you. What saves you is not what you do for God, but rather what God has done for you by his grace in and through Jesus. You're saved by grace and by grace alone. So you see, it's the events that take precedence over the teaching. And that's why Luke wants you to know what has been accomplished among us. But there's more. You see, Luke begins his gospel by saying, I want you to have certainty about these things. But notice how the gospel of John ends. John says at the very end that he has written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might find life in his name. See, real life, true life, meaningful life, the kind of life we long for comes from knowing Jesus. Now, there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. The American theologian Jonathan Edwards used to talk about how there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting the sweetness of honey. We might know facts about Jesus, but that isn't what changes us. That's not what electrifies us. No, we need to know Jesus, and we can. I mean, think about this. No one would ever come up to you and say, you can know Buddha today. No, they would say you can follow the teaching of Buddha. No one would say you can know Muhammad today. No, they would say you could, you could follow the teaching of Muhammad, but you can know Jesus. You see, every other founder of a major world religion would say, look, this is the, this is the truth. As, as far as I perceive it, follow it. But Jesus says, I'm the truth. Follow me. Every other teacher would say, this is the path I think you should go, and that will lead you to life. But Jesus says, I am the way. I am the path. Come to me, and I will give you life. You see, we can't just know about Jesus. We need to know him, and that's why Luke wants us to be certain. We can trust what the Gospels are telling us, and countless billions down through the centuries have experienced just that. They would say, I haven't just read about Jesus in a book. I know him. I can experience him. I've experienced his, his transformative power in my life. Can you say that of yourself? See, that's what the gospel writers want us to know. They want us to know Jesus, not just know about him. So where are you with all of this? You might be someone who likes to come to church. Perhaps you like the familiarity of it all. It's familiar to you. It's comfortable to you. You feel like maybe Christianity gives you a sense of uplift or it provides your life with, with structure. You like the ethical guidelines of Christianity. But you yourself know that you've never actually put your trust in Jesus. You've never embraced that truth and placed yourself under it. But you see, if you want to experience the kind of life you were meant for, you have to make Jesus the bedrock, the foundation of your life. So believe in Jesus, not because he works for you, not because he provides you with uplift or because he 
gives your life structure or meaning or guidelines to live by, believe in him because he's true. Because he's real. Have you experienced that? Do you see that? Or some people, you know, you know you've got doubts. You're a skeptic. You, you might even be cynical about the reliability of the Gospels. When I was in college, there was a very popular introduction to Christianity class that was nicknamed Faith Busters. And there were a few people that probably took that class and whatever semblance of faith they had prior to it was obliterated by the end of the class. But those who were a little bit more serious about their commitment and actually really thought things through found that the arguments against Christianity and especially against the reliability of the Gospels were rather flimsy. And you know, that is the nature of cynicism. Cynicism causes us to consider flimsy things to be solid and to think of solid things as flimsy. But you know what, the encouragement to us here is that it's okay if we have doubts. It's okay if we're wondering whether or not we can really trust the Gospels because Luke anticipates that question. That's the question he's trying to address. And so if you have doubts about the credibility of the Gospels and whether or not they really provide us with the truth about Jesus, then don't stay where you are. But read the Gospels and listen to the testimony. Listen to the testimony of the eyewitnesses. The authors of the gospel are no less honest than any other person from human history. And we have no less reason to give their testimony a fair hearing. So read it. Hear them out. And they might just change your mind. And then others of us, we are Christians. We've, we've committed ourselves to Christ. We believe that the gospels are true, that they connect us with reality, and yet we may not be experiencing the transformative power of Jesus in our lives. We know a lot about him, but it doesn't seem like we know him. And why might that be the case? If I were to ask someone close to you, someone who knows you well, has this person changed at all over the last 12 months? Are they more patient, more kind, more loving, more generous, more sacrificial? more like Jesus? What would the people closest to you say? See, why aren't you experiencing the transformative power of Jesus in your life if you say that you know him? Well, it may be that you say that you believe in Jesus, but you are still operating as if there is no one for you to obey. There's no truth out there that you need to submit yourself to. You're still calling all the shots. You're still determining the truth for yourself. But if you want to experience the power of God in your life, well, then you need to submit to this truth. There is someone that you need to obey. There is someone that you need to listen to. God has spoken and he has acted in the person of Jesus. We can know him. But if we're going to know him, we've got to listen to him. Let's pray that we can. Father, we acknowledge that Luke addresses the contemporary question. Can we really trust the reliability of the Gospels to tell us who Jesus really is and what he means? And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to work through our doubts and our questions and to give the testimony of the original eyewitnesses a fair hearing. We pray that you would help us to not only know about Jesus, but to know him 
and to experience his transformative power in our lives. As we yield our lives to him, as we submit ourselves to him, as we acknowledge that he is the truth around which our lives must be centered, show us how to make him the bedrock, the foundation of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.